This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. It is, it's fun to do things by analogy and paint pictures for people. And so Doug Nelson is back again. We started this analogy uh, a little while ago, Doug, about fly fishing, which probably bored a bunch of people, uh, but we didn't care because we like fly fishing. So we just soldiered on. And you know what? Not to be deterred, we're just going to keep going with it. We set this up in the prior episode, which anybody who's uh, a little lost by this intro can go back find that prior episode the most recent episode of Doug and I talking drawing this analogy between uh, fly fishing and uh, financial planning we basically went through the setup I'll say of fly fishing and how that applies to if you're trying to paint pictures to uh, personal finance now we're going to talk about the actual fishing and how that applies to personal finance if that's a fair description Doug I, I think that's a good Good description, Brent. Okay, we, good. You know, we covered the uh, the equipment and kind of some basics on fly fishing uh, last session. Now, this session will actually probably be a little bit shorter because now we're going to apply that and say, okay, here are the things we learned about equipment and safety and why there's relationships between fly fishing and financial planning. We even talked about risk and falling in the water and drowning and insurance for liability coverage for professionals uh, in, in financial planning um, last session. Now, this session, we can talk a little bit about the, the three distinct ways that you can catch fish and also the three kind of distinct um, methods that you can use to generate income and or cash flow once you're actually living your overall wealth plan you're done accumulating and now you're going to sit back and collect the re from uh, the resources that you've put away for your life i love it let's do it. it introduce the three well the three that i've been thinking about are fly fishing comes in three distinct forms you can dry fly fish and that's simply where you cast a fly that floats on top of the water and it has to float like a natural insect floating down the river. And fish will see that and rise up from the bottom or mid midstream and eat that bug off the surface. That's called dry fly fishing. There's a second method called fishing on the swing. And that's where you cast your line across and downstream. And then that fly works on the current, kind of wiggles across as it swings across the current. And that's to imitate bugs that may very well be rising in the water. They're swimming bugs and or some type of attractor, like a great big streamer or something that looks like a smaller fish that a big fish will eat. That's called swinging flies. And the fish will charge up and grab that fly. That's a lot of fun because the fish take it so aggressively. Then the third is what we call nymph fishing. Now nymph is simply the larval phase of an insect when they're in the water. And so those you typically fish on what's known as a dead drift, where it's going to drift down through the stream, but under the water. Unlike a dry fly, it's down deep under the water, and it looks like a bug that's been dislodged from a rock and tumbling down the stream, the fish will eat it. So that's called nymphing. Now, when I thought about the resources that most people have for 
their overall plan, they come from typically three sources. And since Brent and I are both tax guys, it, you'll you'll notice it kind of mirrors their taxability when you receive them. So you have what we've historically known as defined benefit plans, where a company agrees to pay you a certain amount down the road when you retire for your entire life, a monthly amount. And these used to be very, very common. Big, big companies had large pension plans. You work for the company for your entire career, and then you collect this stream of income. Hopefully it has a cost of living increase in it as well. So then you get this nice monthly amount. Now that can come from a defined benefit plan with a company, or it can come from annuities. You can buy an annuity to do the same thing. You can also do what a lot of people have done, and that is invest in rental real estate property so that you know you get this monthly cash flow from the rental real estate. That works really well. Now, that's a, those groupings are all what we call taxable items of ordinary income, meaning that every month when you get that check, chances are most all of it is fully taxable at ordinary income rates. So then the second way that you can receive income in your retirement years is through something like a Roth IRA, where the amounts coming out of that are going to be tax-free. So you can also get this type of income by investing in tax-free bonds. But a Roth IRA is nice because you can kind of dictate when you take that money out and need it for something. So I'm just explaining the three methods and we'll get into the whys and how they all work together. Then the third being capital transactions that get some type of capital gain treatment. So then you have your, that's a, in a taxable account where you can have a mixture of bonds and equities and or other assets that when you sell them generate a capital gain, which has a different, different tax treatment than ordinary income. It gets preferential tax treatment at the typically 15 or 20% tax rates. So those are kind of the three areas that we can explore and how they relate to fly fishing and the three ways that we would catch fish on a fly. Do you, so just, just for a little bit of context, so that's, that's a really good um, analogy there. And the, the, sometimes you, you hear financial advisors or people in the industry sort of talk about bucketing, buckets of assets. Do you think of, is this sort of another way to envision that concept of bucketing? And if it's not, you know, maybe explain that too, just so people understand what, what I mean when I say bucketing. Um, sure. Bucketing, and, and we use that with certain clients that understand that whole concept better. Um, you can put buckets of assets, even in separate accounts. Mm -hmm. So you can have your long-term bucket or your bucket that you're you have preserved for long-term spending. You can have a bucket that is assets that are designed to generate current income that you can spend. And you can have a bucket that is designed to take withdrawals from whenever you happen to need them. So you can have these different buckets and each one can have a different risk profile. Just like in fly fishing, there's a, a different a different risk return characteristic of each of the fly three methods of fly fishing. Catching fish on a dry fly is a lot of fun because you can typically, Brent, last time we talked, you talked about walking up to a pool and just standing there watching it for a while. And if you see all of a sudden a fish comes up and breaks the surface ever so gently or even in a big splash, chances are they're feeding on something right on the surface or very close to the surface. So that's kind of fun. You can get your dry fly all ready and cast it out there. 
and then drift it right over where you saw that fish. And that fish comes up and sucks it in, grabs it, and then you can set the hook and you have a fish. There's a lot of fun in, in doing that. Now, if it's early in the morning and there's no bugs in the air and there are no fish rising, you can probably cast a dry fly all you want and you're only going to get lucky and catch a fish here or there because they're not actively feeding on the surface. So the same is true if you have a bucket that is designed to give you current income and that current income is throwing you into a tax bracket that is so high that you're not getting to keep much of it. It's not very efficient. So you're better off to decrease the income coming from that and take some of your money that you need from your Roth so that it's non-taxable and you can lower your overall effective tax rate. The, the other method is catching fish on a swinging fly. Now, that's kind of more of an attractor thing. Some fish will eat those no matter what time of day it is, whether or not there's a bug hatch going on because they just react. Fish really have this little tiny brain. And so a lot of times they just react to things without a, a full thought process. And so if they see a um, this buggy looking thing swinging through the water, they jump on it. Now, the same is true with investing, that you can see something that's flashy and jump on it. It's it's very difficult, though, to maintain an overall well strategy if you're rapidly jumping on something all of the time. So think of, of that bucket, if we want to call it a bucket, more like um, your very, very long-term money that you can invest very riskily, have it bounce all around, but you don't need to spend from it right now so you can let that build over time. So that would be the analogy of for that bucket and swinging mm -hmm. flies. Mm -hmm. Then the last, the last really, to me, is your serious money. Um, it doesn't matter if there's a bug hatch going on or there's no bug hatch going on. It's cold or it's warm. You can usually find a way to catch fish on nymphs. Now, you may have to fish them very, very slow right on the bottom, or you may have to fish them um, barely into the, the subsurface, into the surface film to get fish to eat them. But they're a method that usually works. That is also true with a taxable account. If you have your big family trust or any type of taxable account, then inside of that, you can have all of these buckets. You can have some risky assets. You can have assets that will get capital gain treatment when you get them out, and you can have tax-exempt bonds. So it's nice to have the blending of all three. To me, people have asked me, well, what, what do you really like to see with someone that's brand new coming into the office? And I said, oh, man, if they have a third of their money in a tax-deferred vehicle like an IRA, a third of their money in a Roth IRA, and a third of their money in their, their taxable brokerage account, that's great because that gives us great flexibility in planning their overall distributions and the tax implications of those distributions as they go through their life. Just like when Brent and I walk up to a stream, it's kind of neat if you can have a couple of fly rods with you, one that's all rigged up to cast a dry fly, and then one that you're either going to swing flies or fish with a nymph. It's nice to have both ready and available. If not, if you're packing into a small stream, you just make sure you have the right equipment to be able to do that. You can change your, your leader, which is that clear line at the end of your line, and your fly fairly rapidly, even when you're out there on the river. So that's the nice part. And as people go through their overall wealth plan, that's the reason it's so important to be looking back and saying, okay, here's the plan we lined out. How close are we following it? And what's going on with each of these buckets? Are they performing the way that we need them to? 
to make sure that this is going to last for the entire lifetime. Yeah, I, I really like that. And I think you, uh, you said something that was interesting, which is you were sort of talking about diversity and flexibility not not necessarily i'm assuming and specifically the the idea of diversity and in investments but diversity in the the vehicles that are holding those investments right you mentioned you know stocks and bonds and those are things that could be owned in roth ira just as much as it could be owned in a taxable account but you, but if you have the diversity of the types of accounts and it gives you different types of flexibility. So, for example, you know, you and I are very familiar and probably a lot of the listeners are familiar that with uh, with your IRAs and sometimes even your defined benefit plans, you have specific payout rates once you hit certain ages where you have to draw down those accounts. You don't have a choice. And so if you know like you're talking about um, dry fly fishing on the surface and how, you know, sometimes that's not so good because you may it may just be kicking you into a higher tax bracket. Well, if you know that you have to draw down those accounts, it's likely to kick you into a higher tax bracket. Then you have to sort of plan the way that you place your assets so you don't get overweighted in those accounts in a way that might later be detrimental to you because of the tax rates, whereas you would have been better spreading out the, the risk, so to speak. Correct. And one of the one of the ways to gain more of that flexibility, a lot of people will retire before they are forced to start taking money out of their IRA. The current um, age for people, uh, d- depending upon your birthday, it could be what, 73 or 75 now, Brent, before you're required? Uh, yeah, 70, 72 this year, 73 next year. And then sometime in like, I think it's like 2033 or something, then it then it bumps up. So we, we're in this weird world where the, depending on your birthday, the starting date is different, whereas it used to always just be the same for everybody for a very long time. And it was easy. Now it's a little more complicated. So if you do have money in your taxable account, your brokerage account or your family trust account, and let's say that you retire so your income goes down or you simply decrease your income because you're slowing down, say when you possibly hit age 68, but you're not forced to take money out of your taxable your tax deferred traditional IRA, it's a great time to look at Roth conversion. So a lot of people like me, who I'm 65, so you know, Roths weren't a big deal when I was younger. So we didn't, matter of fact, when I was younger, they didn't even exist. So that's how um, rare they were. <laughs> but most of my retirement funds are in tax deferred vehicles, my 401k or an old IRA. So if I slow down at age 68, but I'm not required to take money out of my IRA until age 70, I believe my birth date being in 1957, requires me to start in at age 73, then I have those five years of age 68 and prior to at age 73, where if my income is much lower, which I can plan by virtue of taking distributions from the family trust or my brokerage account of tax-exempt income, then I can make small Roth conversions during those five years and boost up my Roth. So then I have greater flexibility when I have to to take distributions from my traditional IRA. And also that traditional IRA, if I'm making Roth conversions, it's decreasing in size, which means then my required distributions in later years will be lower. So thereby making my overall income distribution much more tax efficient. Yeah, and then you're taking advantage of the ability to 
to make conversions to a Roth account that don't have that isn't subject to AGI limitations. Um, sometimes if you're Googling these things, it's called a backdoor Roth conversion. I think what you're describing is not precisely a backdoor Roth conversion, but you know, the concept is somewhat similar where you're converting from a more traditional account, traditional retirement account that's deferred compensation into a Roth account and then backing into this diversity of accounts that that you were describing that then gives you the flexibility that you love to see when somebody new comes through the door. Yeah. Yep. So that's that's the the analogy to fly fishing. Now we can talk about diversification in all of these accounts. And again, yeah. I think we've talked about that on your show before that diversification isn't owning 40 stocks and saying, oh yeah, I'm diversified. A real portfolio that is well diversified will typically hold approximately 15,000 different stocks worldwide. And these are going to be held typically in very low cost mutual funds. That's the best way to get these uh, the exposure to, to stocks and bonds and real estate. You mean so not not try to buy 15,000 individual uh, no, companies? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that would be a little cumbersome. And the reason- Slightly inefficient for you or I to do it on our own, I think. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people will say, well, I but I don't want to pay the operating expenses that mutual funds have. That's a waste of money. Well, in most cases now, especially with the advent of ETFs, which are exchange-traded funds, they're different than open-ended mutual funds. The transactions that you have with an ETF are more like a stock. They're bought and sold on an open market. So you're not buying and selling with the mutual fund company. So the mutual fund company doesn't have to sell stocks inside the portfolio, inside the fund and give you your money back. You're buying and selling with a, a willing buying buyer or seller of that ETF. So it makes it much more tax efficient and lowers the cost. Most of the ETFs that you see on the market, you can find them today for under two tenths of 1%. And what I would argue is that it doesn't matter if we're talking about a stock fund, a bond fund, or a real estate investment trust. That manager that's managing that fund has hundreds of millions of dollars. So when they go out to buy stocks or bonds or real estate, they're commanding such large dollars that they get a much better deal than you or I would if we're buying that stock individually. They more than make up for that two-tenths of 1% operating expense that we pay to get there. So they're not only more efficient for us from a tax standpoint, they're also more efficient for us uh, from an expense standpoint. Yeah. And and you're sort of leveraging the ability of someone else who has the economy of scale to then go out and buy this huge diversity of companies that I was joking about uh, kind of on your behalf. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you mentioned one other uh, asset class, and that was uh, rental real estate. Mm -hmm. I know I see that a lot. I know you see that a lot, too, for, for clients who are looking for some sort of steady income stream uh, to go out and buy rental properties. And this is not to, I'm not trying to say that this does not work, but the difference between buying rental real estate and buying something else that's more of a commercial product, for lack of a better term, that pays regular income is that with the rental real estate, the expenses are on you. Whereas with the commercial products, the ex the extra, any extra expense, I should say, is is on the company that's selling that product. So, for example, with the mutual fund, you know, if the mutual fund company itself has expenses that exceed the fees that you've agreed to pay them. They don't just send you the, the bill, whereas with the renter, of course, they send you the bill. You have to pay it. So, 
with rental real estate, I usually just caution people that or my clients anyways, who are who are getting into that business, that it it is probably best if it's really going to work out numerically that they not buy one property. They have to actually own several properties um, in order to have some sort of averaging and then and steadiness to the income stream so that you can offset expenses on one property against income from another because it's almost inevitable that something's going to happen like a normal house and something will break and there'll be a big expense. So that's my only caution uh, or, or sort of comment that I usually have with clients that I know who are trying to get into that um, that type of an asset in order to generate an income stream is that it's not a one asset proposition. Typically, it's a multiple asset proposition in order to get the best results. And that type of investing where you have several um, pieces of real estate that you're renting can lead if people overdo it. Mm -hmm. I would never recommend that someone say, yes, I'm going to my entire retirement plan is based on having these five rentals and the cash flows coming in from the net rental income. What we've seen over and over is Something will go sideways. Maybe the real the real rental market drops off. You'll have a problem with two of the rentals and you can't keep them rented or something will occur and it creates what we call a liquidity problem. You still have plenty of wealth because you own the real estate, but you don't have any cash to spend. So that's where it becomes an issue, which is why in most cases um, there is no statistical diversification benefit or a portfolio that's made up of any greater amount than 20 to 30 percent of your total portfolio. So what that means is that if you have, say, 25 percent of your retirement assets in three rentals. That's fine. The other 75 needs to be in stocks and bonds and things that you can get your hands on quite easily if you need them. And the other thing that I want to mention here, because I've seen a couple cases of it where people think, oh, it'd be a great idea to put this rental in my IRA. I'm going to buy it in my IRA. You have to be extremely careful with that. It is typically a very bad idea. There are very specific rules that will make your entire IRA immediately taxable if you violate those rules. Something as simple as paying for a repair on that rental property out of your own pocket and not out of the IRA or doing that repair yourself, because then that's a that's a uh, con- contribution to that IRA. So you have to be very careful or the kiss of death is saying, oh, yeah, we've got this great rental down in uh in um, uh, Rocky Point. And it's really cool because I've got it in my IRA, so none of the income is currently taxable. We go down and stay there a week a year. No, 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 no. You just violated the rules for an IRA big time. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's bad. That's very bad. (laughs) Also, yeah, don't do that. Well, the other thing with with, uh, so-called self-directed IRAs where you're um, you're then investing in things like rental real estate that people run the problems that people run into is at some point with every deferred compensation plan, you have to take money out. And whether that's you or it's the people who come after you and you can't easily get fractional ownership of real estate distributed out of an IRA. That's the first thing, uh, because it becomes a really challenging valuation problem. If you're distributing out a fraction, for example, the true fair market value of that fraction is discounted, which means you have to distribute more. And so the the property is going to be distributed out of the account, even if you could distribute it one little chunk at a time at a faster clip than if it was just cash, because you don't have to discount the cash, for example. 
And the other thing is that when it comes out, it's taxable income to you. So you're receiving real estate that otherwise would be a capital asset. But when it hits your pocket, it's an ordinary income tax event and it's not liquid. So you have a tax, you have sort of like a phantom tax. This is actually a problem that I have. I see it a lot and I actually have a very specific situation currently with a client where they're going to have to take distributions out of a retirement account. The retirement account owns some farmland. I wasn't involved in the purchase of the farmland through the retirement account. Otherwise, I would have told them that was a bad idea. Um, but that was the way it was structured. And I can tell you there is no elegant solution. Basically, the solution is you you have to sell it. If you do not sell that property, it, the whole thing's probably going to blow up on, in your face and it's not going to be pretty. So there is always this, There's there are all these issues with owning real estate through retirement accounts, like you're saying, all the operational problems and the foot faults. And then when you get at the back end of it and you got to pay the required distributions to yourself or your, uh, your beneficiaries, it, it creates all sorts of problems. So yeah, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of that. Yeah, me either. Just, it's just a problem waiting to happen. Yeah. Exactly. And it's a problem that you can solve outside the retirement account. I know that people do it because they have liquidity within the retirement account. So that's what motivates them to get into those transactions. But if you talk to most real estate experts um, who really invest in real estate, they'll tell you anyways that you should do real estate deals with leverage, meaning financing from somebody, a bank or otherwise. You're not going to do a lot of finance deals with your retirement account. So there's just a whole host of reasons why it I don't think it works so well, doesn't pencil out great, and you end up with way more problems on your hand than you anticipated. Um, having rental real estate in your IRA is kind of like going fly fishing without a hat or sunglasses. <laughs> or need, sunscreen. <laughs> yeah, you need that protection. Yeah, that's true. Well, Doug, I uh, appreciate it as usual. Lots of good tidbits in there. Um, just to remind people, if they're looking for you, what's the best way to find you? Um, you can email me at doug.nelson at tciwealth.com or just call the office, 520-733-1477. I'm usually around. Yeah, or just Google Doug Nelson, TCI Wealth Advisors. Um, the internet will find a way to find yeah. to find yeah. Doug, I promise. You can actually look on the internet and probably what you'll do is look through some of these resumes of some of these younger advisors we have and say, geez, why do I want Doug? He's not half as smart as he's young. <laughs> this Doug guy doesn't look like he knows what he's talking about. He looks like he hasn't gotten a haircut in 30 years. Yeah, I don't need one anymore, Brent. <laughs> It's because Doug is bald. I know this is uh, this yeah. is audio. Nobody can see Doug. But um, well, Doug, as usual, uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for doing it. My pleasure, Brent. Anytime. Hey, listeners, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at wealthandlaw. I'll see you there. <laughs>